Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. This episode, we're gonna party like it's 1999. Because it is. It makes sense to follow the sun, so we'll start in Hong Kong with Jackie Chan, My Stunts. Director and actor, Jackie Chan. Script, Bay Logan and Tony O. Director and editor, Javier Lee. Actors, Ken Lo, Bradley James, Alan Anthony Capio, Mars, Chang Chi Lee, Andy Cheng, Rocky Lai, Brett Rather, and Bao Yuan. Jackie Chan gives us a quick history of Hong Kong cinema and his role in it. He starts by informing us there are two basic genres. Period films, which feature hand-to-hand combat, and kung fu films, which feature sword play. The bulk of the film is Jackie and his stunt team walking us through the tricks of the trade. This held no surprises for me, although I'm glad the film implies by showing us that it's not a stunt unless you can do it over and over again. It has to be designed around the camera framing and from the camera point of view. Stuntman Ken Lo was born on March the 17th, 1959, in Stang Cambodia. In 1975, he and his family moved to Thailand. There, Ken became a fan of Bruce Lee and began to practice Muay Thai and Taekwondo. In 1986, he met Jackie Chan in a Hong Kong disco. Jackie hired him as his personal bodyguard and put him in many of his movies, memorably in Drunken Master 2, 1994, when he stepped in after a stuntman was injured and helped create a legendary and one of the most remarkably sustained examples of martial arts choreography ever filmed in Hong Kong cinema. Stuntman Bradley James Allen was born on February 14, 1973 in Melbourne, Australia, and he died in 2021. Brad began boxing and karate training at the age of 10. He then studied wushu and gymnastics at 14. This included two years of study with the Beijing wushu team under Liang Changxing and Tang Lai Wei. Brad studied the Mandarin language along with karate, aikido, hapkido, taekwondo, wing chun, boxing and kickboxing. He made his film debut in 1993's unofficial sequel, Drunken Master 2. He then briefly became a member of the Australian stunt team New Generation Stunts. In 1997, Jackie Chan was filming Mr. Nice Guy in Australia, so Bradley decided to audition. He got the role and an invitation to join Jackie's stunt team. Stuntman Mars, also known as Chuang Wing Fat, was born on February 28, 1954, in Hong Kong. Mars started his career at the age of 12, working as an extra and then getting supporting roles. According to legend, Mars got his nickname in 1971 because he was called a Martian monster on stage. The name stuck. 
1979, he joined the Jackie Chan stunt team. Since 1996's Mr. Nice Guy, Mars has been billing himself by his real name. He is also a senior member of the Jackie Chan and Samo Hung stunt teams. Stuntman Yuan Bao was born on July the 26th, 1957, in Castle Peak Road, Hong Kong. At the age of six, Yuan was enrolled in the Peking Opera School, where he was one of the Seven Little Fortunes, a group that includes Jackie Chan, Samo Hung, Corey Yuan, and Yuan Hua. He was trained by Yu Jim Yuan. Remaining at school until he was 16, he then followed Samo Hung to Hong Kong to get involved in the movie industry there. In the early 70s, his work was mostly as an extra and body stunt double, famously doubling for Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon, 1973. By the late 70s, however, Jackie Chan and Samo Hung were throwing work his way. He developed a significant body of work through the 80s. In the 90s, movie work was scarce, so Ewan shifted to TV. His career reactivated in the 2000s when Jackie Chan took Ewan to the US as stunt coordinator on Shanghai Noon. He has since balanced TV work with movie work. History was unbalanced. On... January the 3rd, the Mars Polar Lander was launched by NASA. February the 12th, President Bill Clinton of the USA was acquitted in impeachment proceedings in the US Senate. March the 24th, a fire in the Mont Blanc Tunnel, a link between France and Italy, killed 39 people and closed the tunnel for three years. May the 13th, Carlo Aziglio Ciampi was elected president of Italy. June the 19th, Turin, Italy was awarded the 2006 Winter Olympics. Why is shrouded in mystery? November the 20th, China launched the Shenzhou spacecraft. December the 27th, Cyclone Martin cuts a swathe through France, Spain, Switzerland, and Italy, causing an emergency situation at the Ballier nuclear power plant situated in France. After a blowout from Cyclone Martin, it might not be a good time to visit Italy, but that is exactly what Martin Scorsese does in Il Mio Vaggio in Italia, My Voyage to Italy. Director, script, and actor, Martin Scorsese. Script, Suzo Cecchi D'Amico, Raphael Donato, and Kent Jones. Director of Photography, Phil Abraham and William Rexer. Editor, Thelma Shoemaker. And actors, too many to mention. We need to get a precise definition of this movie before we get into a review, as this is the only way to approach the film, with an accurate expectation of what to expect, I hope. 
The first thing to expect is that this film is almost four hours long and in two parts. Its theme is the history of Italian cinema. This is both true and inaccurate. Its focus is on post-war Italian cinema into the 60s. That is more truthful, but still inaccurate. The film describes the post-war neorealist movement in Italy. This last definition holds the most truth, but there is still an elephant in the room. Director Martin Scorsese talks about all the great neorealist directors, with the single exception of Pier Paolo Pasolini. This is a notable exception, because Pasolini took neorealism with him to his death in the 70s, the only one to remain faithful to the movement until the very end. Perhaps Scorsese couldn't get funding if his movie included a communist faggot. Or maybe, maybe the films of Pasolini never made it into the Italian-American community because he was a communist faggot. Martin Scorsese takes the films he mentions and relates them back to his New York experience among the Italian community there. In essence, my feeling was that this is about Italian cinema by someone who had never experienced Italy, only the mongrel version found on the streets of New York. It is a peculiarity of the USA that the colonizers like to identify with the country that they came from, yet the culture and traditions they use for this identity come from the country they were born into. In Martin's case, it is a manufactured image of Italy that he relates to and not its reality, and his reactions to Italian cinema are as authentically Italian as an Irish-American's to Ireland on St. Paddy's Day. Expect no more than a tip of the hat to the silent era. There will be no walkthrough of Italian comedy, no more than a tip of the hat to Italian epics, and no mention of Italian horror and science fiction of the 50s and 60s. No reference to the Hercules or McKist films of series of films. No mention of spaghetti westerns, where the Italians did to the US what the US had done to Italy. Mind it for material. Martin Scorsese opens with the statement that all cinemas are secondary to the US, a bold statement that I wish he had expanded on. Make some commentary on monopolistic practice in foreign cinema, especially as far as the distribution of films goes in foreign markets, and how the local market has been structured to keep the foreigners from repaying the favour. No, he just makes this arrogant statement and lets us assume that it is because US product is just so superior. He then fills us in on his family history, starting with the arrival of his grandparents into their new home and their yearning for what was left behind, which could only be filled through the movies. Martin's experience of Italian cinema started with showings on TV in poor quality prints with bad dubbing. What he noted, as a child, was how different these movies were from what was being made in the US. 
The textures on screen, the sets, the costumes, all were beautifully crafted. Italy has a sense of a long history behind it. Even the films set in the modern era carry that history with them. In the second very stupid thing Martin says in this film, he notes that while Italy's history goes back several millennia, US history only goes back 200 years. It would be more accurate to say the US sense of history comes only from the colonizer's perspective. With that backdrop in place, Martin is now ready to display the meat of his feast. It is garnished by the history of Italian Reconstruction at the end of World War II, the lack of funding for movie projects that necessitated the neo-realist style to keep the costs down, and the need to show the humanity of the Italian people to the world after the horrors of fascism had ended. Scorsese doesn't lean in too heavily on this political dimension, and I wish he had. He didn't perhaps for the same reason Pasolini is out of the picture. We then get a walk through, in order, the life and works of Roberto Rossellini into the 60s, the same for Vittorio De Sica and Lucino Visconti, completely ignoring Death in Venice, 1971, because it falls outside the time frame. And then a quick skip through the early films of Michelangelo Antonioni and Federico Fellini, but ignoring Fellini's 70s work when he had no one to compete against except himself. In short, the following films are discussed. Paisa, 1946, Rome, Città Aperta, 1945, Fabiola, 1949, La Corona di Ferro, 1941, Gaburia, 1914, Ladre di Bicicletta, 1948, La Neve Bianca, 1941, Viago in Italia, 1954, Germania Anno Zero, 1948, Il Miracolo, Stromboli, and Terra di Dio, from 1950, Francesco Guillare di Dio, and Europa 51, 1952, Gli Uomini, Che Mascalzoni, and Il Signor Max, all from 1937. Scusia, 1946, Umberto D, 1952, Laoro di Napolini, 1954, Senso, also 1954, Le Basfonds, 1936, Obsessione, 1943, Gione di Gloria, 1945, La Terra Trema, 1948, I Vitaloni, 1953, La Dolce Vita, 1960, The Vos Italiana, 1961, La Aventura, 1960, La Clisse, 1962, and Eight and a Half from 1963. From the clear Italian skies to the dull late year skies of northern USA, in October Sky. Director John Johnson, script Lewis Colick, director of photography Fred Murphy, editor Robert Delva, music Mark Isham. Actor Jake Gyllenhaal, Chris Cooper, Laura Dern, Chris Owen, William Lee Scott, and Chad Lindbergh. Homer Hickam published his biography, Rocket Boys. It didn't take long for Hollywood to take an interest. They were not happy with the title of the book because, 
According to their research, women over 30 would never see a movie entitled Rocket Boys. They suggested October Sky as a better title, and proved it was an anagram of Rocket Boys. I'm surprised Homer didn't ask why the movie had to appeal to women over 30, or at least told the movie executives to Ukufyak, which is an anagram for, well, work it out for yourself. Perhaps in deference to Homer, the film was released on his 56th birthday. The film opens on October the 4th, 1957, the day of infamy, when the USA learnt it had no manifest destiny. It was not special. God did not favour the cheating, lying, thieving white people of the nation more than it did any other people from any other nation. Russia told the USA that day to go beep itself by sending the first satellite into space, orbiting the Earth and sending a signal back to the people of Earth. It was easily seen and heard with the right equipment. From this slight premise, the film tells the tale of the underdog and fudges disgusting issues to do with the larger picture. The film does show us a little white panic, the news announcers explain the situation to the American people by saying this is a grim new chapter, and what they are thinking about is the militarization of space. While the town adults of mining town Colwood are full of doom and catastrophizing the event, teenager Homer Hickam is inspired to build a rocket. Homer, it should be added, is at odds with his community. He doesn't like football and sees the life of a miner for what it is. A life of self-inflicted suffering and a life of company-inflicted penury. His father is a company man and talks about how good the company is to the community. He despises unions and workers' rights because... Well, it's never really explored except in the subtext. It seems his father sees these things as weak and a real man doesn't need weak things. Consequently, he opens the film already dying from black lung disease because he thinks it's weak to protect his own health, if that cuts into the company profit. That is never shared with the workers. He believes the town of Colwood will die without the mine. And, according to contemporary records, it seems to have, at least on a surface level. The truth is that miners can always find other jobs. It is the mine which dies without the workers. The mine owners should acknowledge this. Milling around the background of this film is a reflection on British kitchen sink dramas of the 60s, but director Joe Johnson is careful to emphasise the differences. The British films are pro-labour and pro-union. Homer's father, because he won't recognise class distinctions, favours his oppressors because he believes the fantasy that, if only he could work hard enough, he could join them. That he isn't joining them, he sees as a moral failure on his part, rather than the way the system is designed to maximise his subsidisation of the company. Back to Homer, who is, after all, the focus of the film. 
Homer builds a rocket based on the idea of a firecracker. This manages to blow up a portion of the fence on his property. The failure only inspires him to try harder. He needs to find out what went wrong. At Big Creek High School, he finds an ally in teacher Frida J. Riley. She points out that his hobby, which currently amounts to blowing things up, could be turned to his profit. He could get a state university scholarship by winning the state science fair. A successful rocket program has the potential to do this. Homer assembles his team. The project is now way too big for him alone. He starts with his friends Roy Lee Cook and Sherman O'Dell. One of the changes the movie makes is to amalgamate two of Homer's friends, Sherman Sears and Jimmy O'Dell Carroll, into one character. He also hits on math geek Quentin Wilson to help. Having Quentin on the team, however, does not help Homer with his social standing in the school community. The team has success launching rockets and absolutely none with directing their flight. When some miners are almost killed, Homer's father bans rockets from company property. Homer's solution is to hike eight miles to be away from said property. Although, strangely, they set up on a slag pit, which comes with associations that the company has been illegally dumping slag on other people's property. Moving along, because there's nothing to see here, the boys have found their open space where they can launch their rockets in relative safety. Their problem now is funding. The metals they now use are much more expensive. And the chemicals? Don't ask. They pull up steel tracks from an abandoned rail track. The town becomes interested in the project, no doubt inspired by the stubborn tenacity of the boys, and help where they can. Tragedy occurs when they are accused of starting a forest fire. On top of this, Homer's father is injured in a mine accident. Homer decides to close the project down and go down the mine to support his family. Miss Riley comes to the rescue in a roundabout way. She gives Homer a book on applied rocket science. This book has the mathematical formulas that prove none of the experiments could have started the forest fire. They were just too far away. This gives Homer the confidence to return to school and the project. Homer's team win the statewide contest, and Homer goes on to join NASA and train astronauts. Director Joe Johnson was born on May 13, 1950, in Austin, Texas, USA. Joe began his career as a concept artist and effects technician under George Lucas, who guided his early career. George granted him a sabbatical leave in 1984 to study at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Joe made his directorial debut in 1989 with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and spent the 90s in the science fiction fantasy genre. Actor Chris Cooper was born on July the 9th, 1951 in Kansas City, Missouri, USA. As a teenager, Chris worked with a local repertory theatre, saying later, I had a background in carpentry so I could build sets and work in the wings and shift scenes in the evening. After graduating from high school, he became a shop foreman for another company. 
Chris enrolled in the theater program at the University of Missouri, majoring in set design, and then shifted to acting to overcome his overpowering shyness. He was also taking dancing lessons at Stevens College in Columbia. As this is a private woman's college, I'm guessing there's some story there. Chris returned to New York City in 1976, taking whatever acting work came his way and supporting himself by renovating apartments. That is, until his film debut in John Sayles' 1987 film, Mate One. His career took off, and he frequently collaborated with John Sayles. Next episode, we leave Neverland in the 2019 documentary, Leaving Neverland. For more movie moments, don't forget to buy all the Movie Chronicles series at an e-store near you. The second edition of Movie Chronicles 1960 is currently hot from the oven. Don't forget to become a Patreon or Buzzsprout supporter and enjoy all the gooey goodness of being a pod person. Until next time, I'm looking at the man in the mirror. <laughs>